Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 77. We have something a bit special for you today. It's not a short story, but an extract from a new novel by Matthew Kressel called King of Shards. Matthew not only allowed us to produce this extract, but he also took time out of his schedule to chat with me, and we'll be playing that for you as well. Matthew is a multiple Nebula Award finalist and World Fantasy Award finalist. This, his first novel, King of Shards, debuts today, October the 13th, from Resurrection House. His fiction has, or soon will appear, in Clark's World, Lightspeed, Nightmare, io9.com, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Interzone, Apex Magazine, and many other markets. He was the former editor and publisher of the acclaimed zine Sybil's Garage, and he published the World Fantasy Award-winning Paper Cities. Alongside veteran editor Ellen Datlow, he co-hosts the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series in New York. He's been a member of the Altered Fluid Writers Group for more than a decade, studies the Yiddish language in his spare time, and is preternaturally obsessed with the film Blade Runner. Find him on Twitter as at Matt Kressel and his blog at matthewkressel.net. The extract is read for you today by our amazing brother and sister team, Matthew and Sarah Fredrickson. They were both born in Oregon in the United States and raised in beautiful Minnesota. Sarah went to Australia for a year after college, met an amazing Australian man who asked her to stay and, I'm happy to tell you, ended up marrying him not too long ago. She still found time, though, around busily planning her wedding to narrate her parts of this extract for us. Her brother, Matthew, lives in Memphis, Tennessee with his rock star plastic surgeon wife. He reads and writes and runs in his spare time, when he isn't brewing beer, that is. You can find some links to him on the Triple F. And here we have it. King of Shards by Matthew Kressel King of Shards Book One of the World Mender Trilogy 
by Matthew Kressel The Legend of the Thirty-Six There are thirty-six just people who sustain the world. Thirty-six hidden saints who quietly perform small acts of kindness and righteousness. So concealed are these saints that you or I could be one and not know it. Each of their small acts serves to uphold the world, and it is said that if not for their merit, the world would be destroyed. Because in Hebrew the letter Lamed is thirty, and the letter Vav is six, we call these righteous ones the Lamed Vav. Chapter 1 Daniel was getting married today, but all he could think about was work. In the musty Hebrew school classroom of Temple Beth Tiferet, he pulled the black suit jacket over his shoulders and remembered the storm, how he had laid warm blankets over weary shoulders. He tightened the knot of his wine-dark tie and remembered wrapping gauze round swollen legs. Those folks didn't have homes. Hadn't for years. And yet here he was, about to venture off to an island for two weeks of luxury and indulgence. And what about Graham, who would remain home alone, with no one to call if she needed help? He wanted to keep Rebecca happy, but the truth was he longed to stay in New York and continue working for the Shulman Fund, where he fought for the city's homeless. He wanted to stay close to Graham, the one who had raised him. But Rebecca, as sympathetic and understanding as she could be, had said their honeymoon was non-negotiable. They would be leaving first thing in the morning. Fully dressed now in his itchy black wedding suit, Daniel gazed out the window. Last week's hurricane, unusual for New York, had swept out the late summer warmth, and outside the afternoon air was crisp and biting. The sun descended over a copse of tall Westchester oaks, and the light pierced the blinds, sending ladders of orange across Christopher's smiling face. Christopher managed the rising path shelter that Daniel had helped build, and as he turned, the sun illuminated the tattoo on the dark skin of his neck. A crucified Jesus, blood spilling down his face from his crown of thorns, gazing up at God, awaiting redemption. I've never been to a Jewish wedding, Christopher said. You told me about some of your customs, but I'm excited to see them for myself. Christopher turned, and the shadow of his neck darkened the sky above Jesus, as if storm clouds were rolling in. The rituals are beautiful, Daniel said, but sometimes I feel as if it's more about the performance than the meaning behind them. All rituals are performances, Christopher said. That's the whole point, isn't it? Above the chalkboard, a paper Hebrew alphabet had been stapled to a long cork strip. In the orange sunlight, the letters seemed to burn. The letter Ayan was missing. Ayan, the divine nothing. Ayan, the good or evil eye, depending. At least that's what Graham had said. Daniel shook his head. Now wasn't the time for her silly superstitions. Outside, the branches of dead trees shivered in the wind. What do you see? Christopher said, as if he were a philosophy reb from one of Graham's Hasidic tales. Randomness. Daniel said. The forest outside looked as if it had been blasted in a nuclear attack. Most trees were bent, broken, but not all. Why do you think the storm knocked down some trees and not others? The fallen ones seem no different from any other. 
Luck, Christopher said. It's like people. Some are blessed with good fortune. Others, not so much. Inem's mazel is an andrent shlomazel, Daniel heard Graham say in Yiddish. One's good luck is another's misfortune. He remembered the night of the hurricane. The wind had been blowing in ten different directions, and Manhattan's streets were empty, gray, and rain-choked. Like a mouse in a giant cemetery, Daniel had weaved under dark skyscrapers toward Rising Path Homeless Shelter. Open only six weeks, they'd received several summons for overcrowding. Another and they'd be shut down for good. But when Daniel saw the homeless people waiting outside in the storm— the diabetic with his swollen ankles and bloody socks, the schizophrenic who couldn't light her cigarette, the drunkard who had collapsed on the curb, the mother trying to soothe her colicky baby. He'd convinced Christopher, the manager, to let them all inside. It hadn't been enough. Dozens of homeless throughout the city had gone missing after the storm. Washed away to be forgotten, their deaths remained untallied in the storm's official toll. Daniel sagged with the weight of the memory. Outside the classroom, the sun dipped behind a broken tree trunk, and the light splintered into a fan of orange rays. The storm hurt a lot of people, Daniel said. I know, said Christopher. But this is a day of happiness, Danny. You work very hard. You deserve this. Make sure you pause to enjoy it. But do I deserve this? He thought. Five years ago, right out of college, he'd taken the job with the Shulman Fund. Through their non-profit wing, he'd worked on many humanitarian projects, but Rising Path was his from start to finish, and he felt a responsibility for it, like a father to his child. He had made arrangements for his absence, of course. Christopher was more than capable of managing the shelter. But the storm had shown him there was no such thing as being fully prepared. Christopher pivoted open one of the small windows and lit a cigarette. Cool air raced around Daniel's ankles. You never told me how you got home that night, Christopher said, exhaling corkscrews of smoke. The buses and subways had shut down by the time you left. I walked. All the way to Brooklyn? In the wind and the rain? Daniel nodded. You didn't have to check up on us, you know. You could have called. I did. Several times. No one answered. He'd actually called more than thirty times. He could still hear the hollow space at the end of each long ring. It must have been some walk, Christopher said. It wasn't fun, but at least I had a home to get back to. Christopher took a long, slow drag. Yeah. He said. Yeah. Pelted by the cold rain, Daniel had walked over the Williamsburg Bridge. Cars honked and seagulls cawed as the bridge swayed fitfully. He had tried to call Graham many times, but she didn't answer. It tore him up. He should have been there with her. When he was a boy, she had leapt through a wall of flames into his burning bedroom, wrapped him in a blanket, and carried him through hell to safety. And for this selfless act, she had been burned so severely that she resembled a hideous monster to everyone but him. His parents had died that night, and Graham had raised him as her own. But he had just fled the nest. 
Three months ago he had moved out of Graham's Babylon home and into Rebecca's small Bushwick apartment. Graham had survived the storm, thank God. Her house had only minor damage, but like the trees in the forest outside, from sheer luck. Floods destroyed more than half the houses in Babylon. For Graham, it could have been much, much worse. An usher stuck his head into the classroom and said, Daniel, it's time. You ready? He took a deep breath as Christopher tamped out a cigarette. Daniel nodded, and out they went. The wedding party stirred when he arrived in the lobby of Temple Beth Tiferet. The antechamber to the sanctuary was large and opulent, with murals of Moses, the Zodiac, and the twelve tribes of Israel frescoed on the walls. A glimmering chandelier hung over ornate couches. Daniel shook hands and kissed cheeks. Almost all of these people were from Rebecca's extended family, people he'd met only last night at the rehearsal dinner. At that same dinner, Christopher had asked Daniel why he'd chosen him to be best man. Why not one of his school buddies? And the truth was that Daniel hadn't made many long-term friends. They'd moved to other cities, to bigger jobs, and after a while, Daniel had lost touch with them. Perhaps the fault lay with him. Secretly, he enjoyed the freedom of anonymity because it felt, in a strange way, safer. Rebecca was readying in a classroom down another hallway. She had requested to forego the bridal veiling, but thought it bad luck to see Daniel on the day of marriage. The ketubah had been signed in the presence of the rabbi the night before, so all that was left to do was to declare their vows before the public and God. He remembered the first time he saw her. It was at a prep meeting for the city meals event. Her striking eyes, brown whorls flecked with green, reminded him of an autumn forest blowing in the wind. Rebecca worked for another non-profit, and as they spoke he found her sharp and witty. She giggled whenever he made a joke. And several times after, they met for coffee, ostensibly to discuss the event, but it became obvious that their rendezvous had nothing to do with city meals. He felt guilty about that at first, but his feelings quickly shifted to excitement. When he spoke about work, she listened with compassion and understanding, beyond what he thought possible in a partner. Her shoulder-length hair was so black it seemed blue, and he loved to run his fingers through it when they kissed. The freckles on her porcelain skin covered her body like a sky full of stars, and when he closed his eyes he could count them all. Her husky and feminine voice, inflected with occasional Slavic intonations, made him feel warm and at home. But it was her selflessness that he had fallen most in love with. The person who spent eighteen hours a day making sure others had enough to eat or got the medicine they needed or had a warm place to sleep. She was, as Graham might say, a gut nation, a good soul. His heart warmed as he thought of her. Take your places, please, the usher said. We'll be starting in a minute. Daniel wiped sweat from his brow as live music started in the sanctuary. Box Largo, from the concerto for two violins in D minor. He wore no fringed talus, and there would be no hoopah swaying over the wedding couple. Rebecca's requests, 
too, of many particulars, like the bridesmaids' dresses of emerald satin, brocade trim, and sparkling belts fit for twenty-first-century cowgirls. He'd left all the wedding details up to her, like the groomsmen's traditional black suits and their ties, handkerchiefs and cummerbunds, all the color of spilled wine. She had chosen this shade for the flowers, too, the color of the sky twenty minutes after an autumn sunset. The same color Daniel saw as he looked out the glass doors of the synagogue, as the sky was just now. The wind gusted and a spray of leaves tumbled past the entrance. And following the leaves stepped a white-haired man dressed in a long cloak. The man peered inside the synagogue as he walked quickly past the doors, his eyes white as moons, and a wave of sudden dread washed over Daniel. The night of the storm rushed back to him. He had been just a few blocks from Rebecca's apartment on the night of the hurricane, soaked and miserable, looking forward to a hot shower, when a tall, white-haired man in a long cloak, the same man, Daniel was certain, leapt out from behind the scaffolding of a construction site. Daniel remembered him from Rising Path. Earlier that night he had been staring at Daniel from a stairwell. His Roman nose and a sharp jaw were distinguishing enough, but it was those white eyes, as bright as twin moons, that he recalled most vividly. With schizophrenics he often felt as if they could peer deep into his soul, beyond the boundaries of his ego, to glimpse disapprovingly at his fragile self, because that was the hellish place where they lived. But this man's gaze delved fathoms deeper, down into his reptilian brain, plucking at his primal fears, like a fever dream concocting nightmares from his id. The man said, Don't marry that beast! The cosmos will collapse, and all the universes will shatter in a cataclysm to dwarf all cataclysms, and it will all be your fault, Daniel. He likely had overheard Daniel on the phone back at the shelter and concocted this delusional fantasy. Daniel took a deep breath and slowed his racing heart. And as politely as he could in the sixty-mile-an-hour gusts and heavy rain, excused himself from the stranger and headed home. He didn't tell Rebecca about the encounter. There's no reason to scare her. Things like this happen sometimes, and in the chaos that followed the storm, he had forgotten all about the encounter until now. The white-haired man vanished beyond the synagogue wall, just as Christopher tapped him on the shoulder. You all right, Danny? You look a little pale. Daniel forced a smile. I'm fine. Just a little anxious, that's all. My fear is playing tricks, he thought. That was a different man. No other explanation made sense. The usher gave his cue, and Rebecca's first cousins entered the sanctuary through the heavy mahogany doors. The next couple followed, then the third and the fourth, their steps in sync with the music. With each couple, his heart rate intensified. Rebecca's relatives had flawless skin, professional haircuts, upper-class jawlines, and models' noses. Only a few cousins had shown up from his side. He wouldn't have called them good-looking. Besides Christopher and his cousins, there was only Graham. He had asked her if she would walk him down the aisle, but Graham had refused. 
he begged her to come, and she agreed only if she could sit, veiled and anonymous, in the pews. She wanted no part in this ceremony. This was not about her disfigurement or embarrassment. Graham hated Rebecca because she had stolen Daniel from her. And so Christopher had happily agreed to walk Daniel down the aisle. He closed his eyes and imagined his parents' faces. What would they have worn? What would they have said? Would Dad have imparted some inane marriage wisdom? Would Mom have asked veiled questions about grandchildren? If only they'd been here to witness this. As if reading his mind, Christopher put his hand on Daniel's arm. Remember, this is a day of joy, Danny. God wants you to be happy. Daniel nodded and thanked Christopher just as the usher signaled it was their turn to enter. To the beat of the music, he and Christopher stepped into the sanctuary beyond the mahogany doors. Towering stained-glass windows spilled multicolored lights over all the guests as they all turned to look at him. His cheeks grew hot. He disliked being the spectacle. Rebecca's family, on the left side of the sanctuary, beamed with celebrity teeth, photogenic in their tailored suits and glittering dresses. Their expensive jewelry winked brightly in the light. His relatives sparsely occupied the right side. A few stocky, balding men, distant cousins of his mother, and their middle-aged wives. Two kids argued over a pocket video game. The girl picked her nose and stuck it into her brother's face. Graham sat in the fifth row, hooded and veiled. As he passed her, she made a gesture to ward off the evil eye. She kissed her Hamsa pendant and whispered, Knainor. He smiled and hoped that under her veil she smiled back. He stepped onto the bima and took his place beside the groomsman. Christopher positioned himself beside a row of tall, good-looking men from Rebecca's family. He was a head shorter than the shortest, and the only African-American among them. The rabbi, his beard as orange as dried apricots, raised his well-thumbed prayer book as the orchestra changed tune to an intense, aggressive waltz. Daniel couldn't place the song. Was this Rebecca's choice? His relatives grimaced, but her side smiled and swayed and turned their heads towards the mahogany doors in unison, as if Rebecca had entered, but the doors remained closed. Yet an instant later, had they known she was coming? The doors opened, and in she strode. Daniel held his breath as her parents led her in. They were as pale, dark-haired, and graceful as she was. Rebecca wore a black, tight-fitting dress affixed with hundreds of small mirrors that sent a planetarium of reflections over the audience. She had wrapped her waist many times with a thin, patent-leather belt, and its oversized buckle, a shard of a broken mirror, reflected spots of light in front of her as she walked. He had seen her wedding dress many times, a lacy white gown that had taken up half their shared closet. What the hell was she wearing now? Her relatives smiled. They sighed and got teary-eyed and held palms over their breasts. His relatives turned bemused gazes toward him, and he shrugged. He had no idea why she had chosen this attire. He couldn't see Graham's face under the veil, but he knew he wouldn't like her expression. Rebecca had always been unusual when it came to fashion, but this was bizarre. 
Her parents kissed her and took their positions on the bima. Rebecca flashed her white teeth and looped around them once, twice, as her mirrors dazzled him with a thousand reflections. Each loop represented a day of creation, and she would end on the seventh day, the Sabbath, their marriage becoming an echo of God's work. And though he was blinded and confused, he was certain he counted five, and only five loops before she paused. Her eyes were whirls of green and brown, her pupils dilated as she met his gaze. He was transfixed. Her expression was joyous, yes, but underneath lurked something feral, wild. Was she drunk? It took immense effort to move his lips. He whispered, What's going on, Beck? She smiled. I gird myself with the fragments of the cosmos, just as you, Danny, have girded this world. He stared at her. What? The music halted. She nodded to the rabbi, and he began officiating. Daniel felt the eyes of his relatives upon him. His cheeks were aflame. They couldn't stop now. He'd get answers later at the reception, as soon as he and Rebecca had a moment alone. He repeated the Hebrew prayers after the rabbi and took Rebecca's fever-hot hand. Christopher presented the gold band, and Daniel placed it on her index finger, her nails the same wine-dark color as his tie. He repeated after the rabbi, Behold, you are sanctified to me with this ring, according to the law of Moses and Israel. Then came the kiddush, the concord grape wine, dark and shiny in the silver cup. The rabbi wrapped a small, clear wine glass inside a napkin and placed it on the floor. He nodded to Daniel, and Daniel lifted his foot. Stop! Someone shouted. The sound came from the rear of the sanctuary, and everyone turned. Daniel gasped and felt as if someone had shoved a sharp, icy needle into his heart. Because there he was, the same tall, white-haired man with moon-bright eyes, the same man who had followed him home that night of the storm. He had just burst through the sanctuary doors and was sprinting towards them. Stop! The man shouted again. Don't break the glass! Rebecca said, Break it, Danny! Hurry! Break the glass now! The man leaped for the bima, when suddenly he wasn't a man anymore, but an enormous black dog, eyes as white as milk. Daniel gasped, and the audience shouted in mutual astonishment. Their faces blurred as if water had been poured over his eyes. But blurred wasn't the right word. It seemed as if everyone had been formed from millions of tiny cubes of salt. And not just the guests, but the prayer books, the pews, the stained glass windows, too. Everything had become granular, discreet. Even time itself skipped forward in steps, as if attached to a cosmic escapement. This is a dream, he thought. Graham was shouting under her salt crystal veil. Her words slurred and slow. The salt grains grew, and the world pixelated into a thousand bright mosaics. Rebecca shouted, Break the glass, Danny! Break it now! Everyone had become writhing salt monsters except for Rebecca and the black dog. Daniel screamed, and his voice stretched across time, back to creation itself, perhaps eons before. The dog reached the stage and morphed into a man. 
He grabbed Daniel's wrist. You treasonous bitch! He said to Rebecca. Rebecca grabbed the silver kiddush cup from the stunned salt crystal rabbi and smashed it against the man's forehead. Wine flew into the air and a gash zippered open on the man's scalp. A spray of blood-red cubes spun in the air, unaffected by gravity. Rebecca howled and her face withered like the roots of an ancient tree. Her eyes became horrid pools of black. Daniel screamed again as the man yanked him away, and he let the man pull him off the bima, away from the hideous face, across the sanctuary, through the lobby, and out the glass doors into the night. Cold air nipped at his skin as the man yanked him over the parking lot paved with salt. He pulled Daniel past cubiform cars and into a metropolis of crystalline gravestones. The rising moon was a crescent of salt that spilled pale light onto pixelated branches. The stars were each single salt grains. I'm hallucinating, he thought. Screams and shouts rose behind him as the man released Daniel's hand beside a towering oak. Who are you? Daniel said between gasps. He tried to rub the nightmare from his eyes. The man muttered several phrases in a bizarre, guttural language, then squeezed his hand into a fist and slowly opened it. A spark of light floated in his palm, a flame without a candle. He let the spark fall, and it fluttered to the ground. When he touched the earth, the spark vanished and the ground shuddered. The man turned to Daniel, his pale eyes more ancient than time. Who am I? he said. I'm the savior of the cosmos. Now stand back! This is a fever dream, Daniel thought. It has to be. The ground sank, and he leaped back as a hole formed and deepened. It grew quickly, and the earth erupted in an explosion of frigid air. Dead pixelated leaves vorticed into the hole. A hundred gravestones cracked. The Hebrew names of the deceased split in two. Danny! Rebecca screamed. She was sprinting through the cemetery toward him. Come back! She held up the napkin-wrapped wine glass for him to break. Christopher was running behind her. Danny! What the hell is going on? He moved towards them, towards sanity. But before Daniel had gone three paces, the stranger grabbed him by the waist. He struggled to free himself, but the man was too strong. The hole was twenty feet wide and growing, when the oak tree groaned, snapped, and splintered into a million cubes that plunged into the pit. The man paused at the growing rim to look down, and Daniel, unable to break free, glanced too. Monstrosity! He waited in terror and closed his eyes. It was too big. Impossibly big. A brief glance was all it took. Oh God! Oh God! Oh God! No words could ever convey how large and empty this hole was, nor how Daniel knew its ineffable size from one brief and terrible glance. He wished he'd never seen it. He knew this vision would haunt him forever. He wanted to run and hide from that awful pit, but with Daniel tucked securely in his arms, the white-haired man leaped headfirst into the abyss. Chapter 2
The demon had saved Daniel, but the fool didn't know it yet. They fell. They fell. No matter existed in this place before places. Not a single atom in this void of voids. If he had a mouth to scream, the demon would have, because he remembered this terror, remembered tumbling into the abyss when the Creator had ripped his world apart and tossed her screaming children into the great deep. Our mother, the demon thought. Our destroyer. The blind idiot tumbled beside him, a spark of unsteady light flashing in panic as they went down and down and down. They fell. They fell. Milton had it wrong. It wasn't nine days. It was nine eternities. Ages crept past them in a silence that had lain undisturbed since before the first universe. The demon was more ancient than the oldest mountain, older than earth, but the great deep mocked such notions of duration. It could swallow all the years of his life in a trillion, trillion, trillion times. When he had been thrust into the abyss the first time, he had known only fear. But he had been a child then. Now he fell with purpose. They fell. They fell. Time passed. An aeon or a nanosecond. All was meaningless in the breadth of eternity. An orange pinprick formed in the emptiness below. A minuscule spark of light. They fell towards it. Blowing out from its glare in currents long and wispy came ballads of forgotten kings, cries from the death of children, a dying man's last breath. Like smoke, the currents drifted into the vastness to be forgotten, the broken sounds of a broken people in a broken universe. The spark was but an atom's width, and if they missed it, they would tumble in this abyss forever, flotsam in an infinite sea. He pulled the idiot closer and they hurtled toward the infinitesimal dot. Closer now. Closer. And they entered. By a hair's breadth they squeezed through. Then light. Everywhere light and time and dimension. And cursed be her name, his power had abated. He was mongrel again. They tumbled through blue sky, falling toward an orange landscape of sand. Orange and blue, orange and blue. The wind rushed by his canine ears as they hurtled sandward. The idiot screamed as the demon braced for impact. They slammed into a dune, rolled down its face. The demon tumbled and gasped and laughed because after... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Eternity of endless nothing, even pain, was a miracle. They came to rest at the base of the dune. The idiot wheezed and tried to catch his breath. He gagged and vomited, then gazed up at the yellow sun before retching again. The demon waited, and his black mongrel fur grew hot in the sun. Blood dripped into his canine eyes from the gash where the bitch had struck him. It was salty as he licked it away. The idiot stared at him, eyes wide, hyperventilating. There would be no getting through until he calmed, so the dog scanned the landscape. An undulant sea of orange sand surrounded them. The dunes crept forward like slow-moving ocean waves under a vexing yellow sun. Luck is with me today, the demon thought. We've landed in the tattered sea. Not safe by far, but better than the other side of the world. The demon turned to the idiot and was about to speak then remembered he was a dog. He would not reduce himself to barks and grunts. On all fours, the dog was more than half the idiot's height. The idiot backed away as the dog approached him. He explored the strength of his muscles, stretched his back, then paused, inches from the idiot, savoring the man's fear. You and I have a lot of work to do, Daniel. The demon thought. What's, ha what's happening, dog? The idiot stuttered. Where am I? The sand seemed to swallow his words. Nothing lingered in this place of impermanence. With his snout, the dog pointed twice to the south. Are you... The idiot said. Are you pointing? The dog nodded. The man laughed maniacally. <laughs> Did you just nod? He nodded again. What the fuck? The idiot smacked his hands against his head and gritted his teeth. Wake up, Danny. Wake the hell up. The dog gestured again, twice more to the south. They had to move quickly before Mashit came for them. And she would come. The idiot wiped sweat from his face and took off his jacket. 
his boutonniere had leaked a wine-colored stain onto his shirt, like a wound. This isn't happening, he said. The dog leaped onto the man, and he fell backward. He snarled and shoved his snout into Daniel's face, then dragged a paw across his chest, tearing shirt and skin until Daniel screamed. How do you not sense what you are? The demon thought. How do you not know your cosmic purpose? You've concealed yourself so well you don't even remember who you are. The dog released Daniel and trotted away. He gestured south again. Daniel pressed his hand to his new wound, blood mixed with the purple flower stain. Okay, he said, trembling. I get it. You want me to follow you? The dog nodded. Yes, you damn fool. This is insanity, Daniel said. He wiped his mouth and picked up his jacket. Holy motherfucker, dog, where the hell am I? Not where the hell, Daniel, the demon thought. But which one? Leagues across the orange sands of the tattered sea, the workday was nearly over. Beside the sharp crags of Dan Bayer Mountain, a new tower rose brick by massive brick. Twenty masons labored on its peak, adding yet another level to the Ukni Tower's rarefied heights. The masons were young, wiry, taut muscled men, except for one young woman, as strong, if not stronger, than any of the men. Her skin was bronze as oxen leather, and her hair was as black and straight as the giraffes of Karad. The masons whispered that her eyes were as dark as the voids between stars, and that if you stared into them too long, the darkness would infect you with her madness. She was unhinged, the masons said when she was out of earshot a lunatic full of wild dreams and insatiable creativity, and only survived because her father had once been the chief architect for Kim Jalifex. But now that her father had broken his back, her fortune was less certain. Rana had heard all of the gossip about her, but she didn't care much for rumors. What mattered was setting stone in patterns lovely and unique. She wiped sweat from her eyes as she led the masons in an old work song. The men swung hammer to chisel with her words, hefted stones to verse, spread mortar by stanza. And as she sang and set stone, she imagined their movements were brush strokes, the tower walls her canvas. She moved the men with music their eyes distant and untroubled by the heavy labors as they danced the wall into existence. A group of barrel-winged hawks circled overhead as she sang, crying out in mournful arpeggios whenever she paused. The sun neared the horizon. Soiled with mortar, their bodies spent, the masons slowed, drooped, finally stopped. They took quaffs from canteens, lit pipes or dozed, They'd been working since dawn. Rana sat on the stone wall and dangled her legs over the precipice as the wind whipped at her hair. Azru's crooked streets and alleyways sprawled beneath them. From this height, the scattered ruins of the city that Azru had been built atop was clearly visible. She traced the Ukni's shadow over the jumbled rooftops to its peak deep in the tattered sea. In the desert, a caravan made its way out towards deeper sands, stirring up a cloud in their wake. 
Davo sat beside her and offered her a dried palm fruit. What did they do to it? She said. Nothing. Davo shouted. I swear to Molai. Sometimes the other masons spat or pissed on her food. Never Davo, though. She sniffed the fruit and it smelled fine, so she popped it into her mouth. Do you think it will ever rain here? She said. Davo laughed. <laughs> In the desert? Last night I dreamed of thunder and lightning and rivers in the streets. The city shimmered below as the day's heat bled off, and the drooping sun turned Azru as red as the fires of Korra. A storm of storms. Davo nodded. When I was really young, he said, it rained for a whole day. He released a fistful of sand over the precipice. People danced in the streets. They sacrificed calves in the temples. My father made me stay indoors, said the storm was demon's work. I heard about it, she said. It happened before I was born. You can't imagine it. Oceans falling from the sky. The oddest flowers bloomed in the desert. Thousand-colored, big as houses. Giant sparrows came to eat the fruits. The flowers lasted a week before they wilted. I never saw anything like it before or since. Sounds incredible. It was awful. I hid under my bed. I thought the world was ending. One world ending is another beginning. Marul Menacha had told her that. The old woman had told Rana that a thousand other things before she left one day and never came back. Rana picked up a loose stone and began carving a spiral pattern onto the wall. She had glimpsed the shape in a dream and had never quite been able to capture its essence. Did you hear there was another shooting star this morning? I did. You saw it? It was brighter than the sun. It didn't disintegrate like the others. It arced across the northern sky. Two fragments this time. So bright I saw spots in my vision. It's an omen. An omen? Can't a shooting star just be a shooting star? Three in one month? Nothing is ever just what it seems. That's what Marul used to say. Not smelly old Marul Menacha again. He said, frowning. Just when I think you've forgotten her, you dredge her up again. She stared at him. I'll never forget Marul. She was my best friend. She left, what, five years ago? Marul's not coming back, Rana. She's dead. Rana closed her eyes and prayed to Molai that it wasn't true. Oi! A man shouted. The gruff voice of Chief Architect Joe startled her. What the fuck is this? The sun ain't set yet. The balding, corpulent Joe, drenched in sweat, waddled up the wooden ramp to the high construction site. The cedar planks complained with his heavy steps. Hey! He kicked two sleeping boys. Get the fuck back to work! Rana and Davo stared at each other to share a moment of despair. The Ukni was ahead of schedule. There was no reason for haste. But Chief Architect Joe was new to his job and wanted to impress King Jalifex. The masons dragged their exhausted bodies over to the basin of mortar. Davo lifted a heavy block of ashlar, and Rana spread brown cement with a trowel on the unfinished wall. 
the others crept back to work. She inhaled and began another work song. Chief Architect Joe got sleepy-eyed as he lit his pipe. He allowed Rana her songs because the masons worked faster when she sang. He watched them set a perfect row of ashlar before he waddled back down the ramp as if lost in a dream. When he was out of sight, Rana leaned back against the wall and slid down to sit. Everyone stopped working with her. I miss your father, Davo said. He was the best chief architect we've ever had. Any chance he'll come back? I doubt it, Rana said, picking up the stone and continuing her attempt to recreate the spiral from her dream. He can't get out of bed without help. I think his back's broken for good. May Malai heal him. Davo eyed her hungrily, and she knew his look. The masons gazed at her like this when she sang. Something about the music throbbing in their hearts that turned them into animals. Davo got this look around quitting time, when his mind was spent and his desire took over. Men in their pricks, she thought. Was fucking all they ever thought about? She turned away from his glare. Smoke drifting from the houses below lofted mouth-watering scents of meats and grains towards them. Nearly supper time. She sighed. Her father would have let the workers go home early to enjoy the remains of the day. But never Joe. I should have been chief architect, she said. I was next in line after my father. One day. You'll just need a few more years' experience. Her face grew hot. Experience? Ha! No, Davo. It's because King Jalifex can't have a woman design his glorious city. What would his enemies think? Davo spat over the edge. <laughs> the same thing his friends think, that he's an ugly lizard. The other masons laughed. If I were chief architect, Rana said, I'd build a city greater than Karad. I'd build the greatest city Gaelom has ever seen. Davo's mouth hung open. Don't, don't speak like that. You'll offend the goddess. Malai has more on her mind than my little fantasies. She frowned and kicked sand to the rooftops far below. You need more patience, Rana. A few more years apprenticing, and we'll each get our own foremanship. You'll see. Apprenticing? Davo, I set the capstone on the crypt of Umar when I was six. I dangled from ropes two hundred stories above the ground. I helped my father design the palace where the king sleeps. I was weaned on mortar. How much more apprenticing do I need? Davo frowned. Forget it. It's not worth fretting about things we have no control over. But that's just it. Every day I choose to heft stone for that sweaty fool. She pointed down the ramp where Joe had fled. I could leave. Leave? You know, quit. And do what? You can't work in Azru without the king's blessing. Then I'll quit Azru too. Davo scratched violently at his black stubble. Where would you go? In the desert, you'd drown in the tides, get eaten by demons or kidnapped by Bedu. And then you'd need a guide. And guides cost money. And you can't trust a sellsword. Davo! She shook her head. Forget it. It was just a dream. He squinted at her. Rana, if you left, who'd sing for us? She felt pity for him. 
One day, she knew, she'd have to leave this place. Leave him. Don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. Not yet, she thought. He bit his lip and stole a glance at the sun. Micah and me are going to the fermentary on Ramswell Row tonight. Want to join us? And get groped by drunk men again? No thanks. I'll make sure that doesn't happen this time. Sorry, Davo. Maybe we can go someplace else then. We? He lowered his voice to a conspiratorial whisper. You know. You and me. She climbed onto the wall and swept her gaze across the cityscape, over buildings she had laid with her own hands. Once this view had inspired awe, but as her hair fluttered in the hot breeze, she realized the city was no longer enough. Azru was too small. Not tonight, she said. I've got plans. She jumped off the wall and grabbed her satchel and tools. Plans? Davo said. With who? The sun touched the horizon, the official end of the day. The masons grabbed their belongings and raced down the wooden ramp, and Rana followed. Rana! Davo shouted, running after her. Wait, tell me, who do you have plans with? A few early stars shined in the east as she shouted, With a paintbrush, you fool! Doesn't that just make you want to run right out and buy the book? It does me. So much so, in fact, that I wangled myself an interview with Matthew Cressel, and what an interesting chat it turned out to be. Take a listen. Welcome to Matthew Cressel. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Matthew is the author of uh, King of Shards, which is the first volume in the World Mender Trilogy, an extract of which you just heard. Uh, the release date is October 13th, which, as you all know, I hope, is today. And Matthew has very kindly agreed to tell us a little bit about the book. So, Matthew, King of Shards, tell us a bit about it. Uh, King of Shards is about Alamed Vavnik, Alamed Vavnik named Daniel Fisher. Now, what is Alamed Vavnik? Alamed Vav is basically a hidden anonymous saint. And according to an ancient Judaic myth, there are 36 such saints supporting the world. If any of these saints cease to be righteous, the world would be destroyed. But the thing about these saints is that they don't know that they are upholding the world, that they are these hidden righteous people. They are anonymous even to themselves. So uh, Daniel Fisher is told that he is one of these Lamed Vavniks, these anonymous saints, by none other than Ashmedai, the king of the demons. Uh, on his wedding day, he snatched away from his bride-to-be and brought down to a shard, a remnant of a shattered universe. And there he must fight his way back to earth in order to protect the other Lamed Vav before they are killed by another demon. Okay. Uh, yeah. So um, where did the inspiration from the story come from? Uh, the inspiration for the story came initially 
from a conversation that I had with my father a long time ago. Um, I grew up in a conservative Jewish household. Um, we went through the rituals. We said the prayers. But there wasn't a lot of discussion about God and religion. Um, in fact, my father, who is an attorney, uh, is an extremely rational person. Um, he would give me books on quantum physics. Um, he gave me the brief history of time when I was 9 or 10. Um, we read Scientific American together. And so it surprised me one day when he said to me, I believe in the Lamed Vav. And it, it stuck with me for all these years. And so I began researching the story of the Lamed Vav and got really fascinated with it and decided to write uh, a book about one of them. And, of course, there's a, a lot of other mythology throughout the book, um, but that that was the impetus that began King of Shards. Okay, and when did you start writing? What, well, what what you know? Have you always wanted to be a writer? No, um, I I started writing in my late twenties after I took a class at the the New School. Um, I had always been a, a daydreamer. I, I lived in my head. And I think this is true of uh, many writers, if not all of them, that we, we, um, we live in our imagination. And I had always been making up stories in my head without realizing it, making up entire tales. And so um, I took a class at the new school. Um, it was supposed to be taught by Terry Bisson, um, but he had recently moved to California. And so it was taught by... Alice K. Turner, who was the fiction editor of Playboy for a couple of decades. And um, there I was introduced to a lot of people uh, in the genre community, in, in the world of writing, in, in the art of critique and how to critique a short story, how to, how to write a good short story. And um, that was the beginning. That's really what opened it up for me. Before that, I had read a lot of science fiction and fantasy and horror and had dabbled here and there with writing fiction, but never really took it too seriously until until I took that class. So um, just for those of our listeners who are curious, what is your work schedule like when you're writing? How do you, how do, you do it? Um, usually I'll write in the morning for about three or four hours. I wake up, have a quick breakfast, and I sit down at my desk, which is really just a... Um, a snack table, and I and I I have a separate place to write from my my work desk. I work at home. I work in IT. I'm a freelancer, so I like to separate that. But also because um, I write in the bedroom, and the bedroom is sunny, <laughs> so I like I like to write in the sun. And then so I sit down at at the little folding desk and write for three four hours and take a break. Um, do my IT work in the afternoon, and then if I have a deadline, I'll sometimes write in the evening for a couple more hours. Do you have any um, little quirks? A lot of writers have quirks, like they have a lucky pair of socks, or do you have any, any strange habits when you're writing? I can't remember where I read it, but someone said that if you have a, a, a writing routine, that's just an excuse not to write. Um, 
<laughs> so, and, and I and I think it's kind of true, but I do feel that um, I like to have a cup of black tea. I don't know why I have that. Um, it, it, it's that uh, association with with tea while I'm writing. When I when I pause to think about something or look something up, I reach for that tea. If it's not there, it, it interrupts my flow. Um, I like to ha- I like to write mostly in quiet spaces. I've done the coffee shop thing, but I get distracted by people moving around me too easily. I think that it's just it's just a matter of you know sitting down, getting in that headspace where the rest of the world vanishes, and it's just it's just me and the words. As long as I can do that, I don't I don't need anything else. You know, the black tea helps. <laughs> well, as long as it's British tea, obviously. I do. I drink English breakfast tea, as a matter of fact. Excellent. Um, Milk and sugar? No, just black. Milk and sugar, (laughs) like a good British brickie. So this is the first of a trilogy. There are two more books coming. There's one coming next year, 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between the books? Sure. Um, So King of Shards has a somewhat of a slow build and i and i think this is because i had to introduce the reader to the mythology and the characters so i needed to get the reader up to speed before i can get the story flowing and i think that in the second book there are because i trust that the reader is familiar with the world at this point that i'm not doing i'm not pausing to build world building as much there are there are definitely parts where i'm building up new aspects of the world that the reader hasn't seen yet um but the second book for example has five points of view the first book has three uh the second book takes place in many many different settings uh whereas the first book takes place mostly in on Gehinom, the the shard. So um, it, the second book pretty much, without spoilers, picks up where the first book leaves off, mm-hmm. and explores some of the ramifications of what happened and how how the characters would deal. I, I can't say too much, but how the characters would deal with the um, the fallout from book one. Let's say. We were discussing Rana earlier, your uh, your heroine um, mm-hmm. from the Shard world. Um, we were discussing the fact that she is quite young and she could be seen as heroine for young adults. Uh, how do you feel about that, uh, the young aspect of your books, the fact that it would appeal to so many young people? Is that what you were aiming for? I wasn't aiming necessarily for a particular audience, you know, I don't remember who said it, but I always thought it was good advice. They said, you should write for the ideal reader, and the ideal reader is yourself. And I thought, I want to write a book that if I was, you know, pick this up in a bookstore, I'd be thoroughly entertained. And that's that's what I tried to write. Um, I didn't necessarily consider the age of that reader. Um, if that reader is 12 or that reader is 80, if they enjoy the book, I'm happy. You know, I, 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 I mean, I, I could see where a young reader could identify with Rana, and I think that's great, but why not an older reader too? 
you know. Do you ever get feedback from your readers? Do you do people contact you and and tell you how they feel about what you've written? People comment on the story. It's really nice to hear. Um, and there's actually um, there's a um, BookTube SFF. I think that's what it's called. They're they're doing a um, uh, like a read along. So uh, they have one of my stories that they're reading for September and on Goodreads, there are people commenting about the story. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Cause they're talking about the, what they liked about it. And it's always, um, it's always fascinating to me to see how people interpret the story. It's not always the way I intended, but it's always fascinating. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write this book? King of Shards. It took a while. Um, mainly because, I was doing other projects in between. I would, I would write, you know, 10, 15 chapters and do two or three short stories and write more. And then I rewrote it a couple times. And then when I sold the book, um, the editor, Darren Bradley sent me additional comments. So I rewrote it again. I mean, not the whole thing, but his comments were excellent. And I, and I said, Oh yeah, you know, he's right. This would improve the book drastically. So I changed some things based on his suggestions. So it, it took, it took a while. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact date that I started, but I would say that the probably was good four years. Um, I didn't have the luxury of that for book two. I had about a year. So it's, it's been, um, it's been exciting. It's been challenging. (laughs) Um, but, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's really nice, um, sitting down to write a book knowing, um, that it's going to be, it's going to be out there and be printed and other people are going to read it. That's, you know, sometimes you sit down to write a story or something else and you don't know if anyone's ever going to see it and that's fine. I mean, if no one ever sees it, okay, but I think it's great knowing that it's going to be out there. Well, I think it's going to be right. It's it's a fantastic book. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You did mention in between you were doing um, some short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, is it easier for you to write short stories, or do you find novels easier, or they're just completely different animals? Well, i I think I, I think the short story medium for me is definitely an easier medium, and I think that's mainly because I've written more short stories. And also, you know, I can I can write a short story in a week or two and then, you know, another week or two for revision um, and then I can move on to something else. The novel, you have to exist in that headspace for months at a time. And it's very easy to get distracted. You know, you have your, your life, your job, everything else. So I, I, I do feel that for me, short stories tend to be easier, but I, I still love the novel for the space because a short story it's like every every word every phrase has to have impact it's not that a novel doesn't it's just that in a short story you just have limited space in which to do that um and you know when i write short stories i go over every line five six seven ten times the novel sometimes i don't have the luxury the time to do that of course i'm still you know trying to perfect it um so, you know, it's, it's, it's different. It's a different mentality for me, I think, when I'm, when I'm working on the novel. So what makes a good story? 
when you're actually sitting down to read, do you read a lot of fiction or is it mostly research for your books? Oh, no, I, I read a lot of fiction. Um, I, I alternate my fiction usually with nonfiction, just out of habit, not because I'm trying to do anything particular. But, um, you know, that, that's the thing. It's, it's extremely subjective, but I would say that um, for me it's, it's an emotional connection with the character. I might not like the I may not like the character in a moral sense, but I'm emotionally connected with what they're doing. Um, also I have a very, like I'm, I'm extremely visual. Um, I don't always need a picture of everything that's going on, but it, if I have like a strong sense of, of world, you know, of the world that I'm, that I'm reading that, that, that helps draw me in too. Um, but I think ultimately it comes down to a, to a, a strong emotional connection with the story. Okay. Your characters are all very clearly drawn. Um, um, as I've said, I, I have an advanced copy of the book and it is fascinating. It, it, it sucked me in. I ignored most of my domestic duties over the last couple of days to read it. <laughs> oh, thanks. Glad you liked it. Um, oh, this is in between planning a child's birthday party, so it was fun. Um, well, I, I didn't want to spoil anyone's birthday party. <laughs> throw enough candy at them and they're fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> But yeah, your your characters seem to gallop along. Um, it's it's very absorbing. A delicious read. Thank you so much. Delicious. Huh? Mm. Thank you, Matthew Cressel. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Good luck with the release. I hope everybody enjoyed the little taste that we gave you. And uh, be sure to pop out to your local bookstore and pick up a copy when it comes out today. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. All right. You take care now. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks very much for your time, Matthew. I'd also like to mention that our new artwork this week is by a very talented young man called Leon Tucker and is called Planes of Another World. Leon is a student based in the Netherlands who specialises in environment art and is aiming to work in the computer or gaming industry. He is also the person who did the front cover art for King of Shards. Keep an eye on this young gentleman, everyone. You'll be seeing a lot of his stuff in the years to come. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around all you like, but you can't change it and you really cannot sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors and artists. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website and are very easy to use. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F. Don't forget to sit back every once in a while, put your feet up, crack open that favourite beverage and listen to some stories. We can help with that. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.